Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Hello, everybody. I am Amber Kenyon with Gateway Research Organization. We are a nonprofit agricultural research association based out of Westlock, Alberta. And we're super excited to be running these networking nights with Steve Kenyon from Greener Pastures Ranching for a third season. I honestly, I can't believe we're on a third season of this already. If you have made it onto one of these in the past or have listened to the podcast, you will know that it's a very free-flowing conversation and we have a good time. So tonight we're super excited to have Graham Finn with us. Uh, Graham is actually, I was with Graham when everything shut down for COVID. And so I'm super happy to have him back with us when things are opening back up again too. Uh, he is the president of Union, For- Union Forge as well as a rancher out of Madden, Alberta, and has a ton of experience when it comes to forages, cover crops, seed mixes, that type of thing. So we're really excited to have him with us. This is going to be a little bit of a different style talk tonight, and I'm, I'm excited for what Graham has to say. So outside of that, Steve, would you like to introduce yourself and your thoughts on tonight's topic? I would. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome to Graham. Uh, we've known each other for many, many years. I'm going to say 15 to 20 years, Graham. I don't know when we first ran into each other, but for been bouncing around conferences together for years. So uh, great to have you on here. I'm excited about your uh, topic. We're going to talk about, you know, maybe what's not all wonderful and, and beautiful about cover crops, because I mean, we've been working with cover crops for years. I mean, back when we started, it wasn't even called cover crops. I think my first one I ever did was in 2002. I put a mixture of different types of perennials and annuals out and, and uh, tried to get a pasture established. So it definitely wasn't called a cover crop back then, but there's some things to watch out for, right? There's some things that don't work well and some things that do, but I want we want to make sure that we've got uh, both sides of the story that we're not just hearing, you know, all the positive things that are going on in that uh, part of the world right now. So a uh, little introduction, I guess, for myself, uh, Steve Kenyon with Greener Pastures Ranching. I've been uh, doing a custom grazing operation in Westlock area for about 20 some years now, I guess. It's been moving into more teaching and education. We actually, this last winter, we actually developed the new Canadian grazing mentorship program. And basically, if anybody's interested, there's a free online grazing school that you can take. And there's follow-up that you can work with a mentor to get an advanced grazing system, you know, uh, started on your farm. So we are, that's full, full born underway right now. And we're excited to get that uh, going. Um, there's also some funding through the off-calf program right now in, uh, in Canada to, to be able to pay for some of that stuff. So it's kind of an exciting time. Um, we've never had this much publicity and, you know, maybe funding thrown at, uh, some regenerative grazing or regenerative management, including cover crops is one of the topics too, which is like what we're talking about tonight. So by all means, if uh, you guys have any questions after uh, about any of that too, we can discuss that. So really happy to have Graham here. We're going to turn it over to him, kind of let us know what you kind of the direction we want to start with here today, Graham. And uh, if we go on a tangent, uh, that's perfectly fine, but uh, uh, tell us about it there, Graham, and a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Thanks guys. But we weren't in the same room that that day, were we? At the hotel room <laughs> up in Grand Prairie when COVID hit. <laughs> yeah, don't you remember that conference? And they're yeah. like, everybody gather yeah. together yeah. so we can give an yeah. announcement. And yeah. yeah, they're like, get yeah. really close because we don't have a loudspeaker. And yeah. then they told us they were shutting down the trade show. <laughs> yeah, and we had to leave. Yeah, and everybody yeah. was scrambling. Yeah, so <laughs> that was that seemed like eons ago now. But I'm glad all that BS is done. 
So, but anyway, yeah, you guys kind of covered it. We're just um, ranchers here, my wife and I, and in the foothills of Alberta, north of Calgary. We started cover cropping probably about six or seven, 2006 and seven, but I didn't call it cover cropping then, and nobody else did either. It was just nutrient dense forage. Like I had to find a better way because we are a year round grazing operation, and um, I wanted to cut the machinery out of our business, which we pretty much have. We we don't have a pit anymore. We don't we don't silage, green feed grain or anything it's just straight livestock now and moving electric fences so but yeah I kind of went down that cover crop path and um, I won't go back that way Um, we still multi-species forage um, but I now I've gone back to using fertilizers I've gone back to using sprays Um, some years uh, like this year uh, the cattle are just grazing oats and triticale I just had too much of a weed burden and so that's where we went down that way and about an in-crop spray. And and I'm not a um, an organic or a naturalist or a save the planet kind of guy. Saving our farm and not saving it, but I'm making it profitable for us so we can have a living as well. And so I imported my first lot of brassica seed, the first lot into Canada, actually. Um, doesn't matter which company. And that was in 2005. And came out of New Zealand just to forage rape and I mixed that with oats and that freaking turned our operation around the heartbeat for winter. We were weeding cards in January, February instead of October, November. So we're able to get a different calf run and make more money that way too. So when I heard these other guys talking about cover crops and how it's a miracle and it'll save your soil, I thought, oh, right on, I'm doing the right thing, but I've had some bad wrecks and it's not worth it keep tools in your toolbox i had one of the experts tell me i sent him some pictures and said that uh i said what's going on here i've, I've had the cattle on the same piece of swath grazing land all well since 2004 and then i had multi-species in seven and then of annuals and then um, i stopped using fertilizers in 15 and 16 17 18 we had great crops and then it all imploded and so I was talking talking to the fella and uh, he said, oh, it looks like you need nitrogen fertilizer, which I'd already ordered and we blew on. And within 11 days, that crop had responded overnight. We just mined our soil too much. Even though we move fence every single day, there's 240 head moving fence every day in the mornings. And uh, so the nutri- nutrient load was really well, but nitrogen moves, as you all know. And so... We had to replace our nitrogen. We just couldn't keep up. And and the plants that were growing, the demand on on the soil to feed those plants, we had to give them some help. Um, we do soil tests every year. We do uh, forage tests every year. So we know what we're going to do with our, with our livestock through the winter. But, yeah, there's a lot of things I'd like to share with you tonight, but I don't know where you want to go now or... Uh, Graham, I, I got a quick question for you about that. So, what if you if you're bringing in nitrogen fertilizer now? What kind of nitrogen is it? Is there a difference to you? Does it matter? No, no, just urea, just okay. pilled urea that blows on because we are a zero till. Everything we are a zero till. We've bought back the fam. The land has been in the my wife's family for nearly 120 years, and it's been cropped probably for 50 years with no livestock, and the crops were going backwards. So. 
when we took it over, it was baby steps. We did eliminate our fertilizer costs and we did cut back like it right now, like I said, it's just about 60 pounds of N every time I see seed because I don't have a plan B. So I have to keep up. And so, but the plants we're growing in that particular paddock, and there's a whole heap around these legumes. I've cut out the clovers. I've cut out the hairy vetches. Uh, all these plants that um, people say, oh, you, you don't have enough clover, you don't have enough vetch. Well, in their countries of origin, they're bloody well perennials. So they're not worried about fixing nitrogen the first year because they, they're they like a clover. They're going to be here or an alfalfa. They're going to be here for X amount of time where if you want a true nitrogen fixer, just get peas, cheap as chips, and make sure they're a forage pea, not a harvest pea, because they will not compete with a big standing cover crop. So, yeah, so it's just nitrogen fert. The FOS is great coming through the livestock. We're pretty stable. So nitrogen is the one we used to. Yeah. So one of the one of the my regenerative rock stars that I listen to lots is actually uh Dr. Christine Jones. She was kind of a eye-opener for me sometimes, but even wow. even her advice, she talks about uh, you you cut back on nitrogen, but you know, she never really gets rid of it. There's always some mm-hmm. still that she's thrown in there. So I'm not yeah. entirely against nitrogen by any means, but yeah. depending depending on your situation, your your context of your farm. Um, it is still a tool that we have in our toolbox for sure. Yeah. Like with Chris, she's like, it works down there, but it doesn't work here. You've got to use nitrogen fertilizer. Like the stuff, the research she's done down there has all been in the tablelands in New South Wales, actually on a cousins of my place, uh, cousins of mine place. And um, they have definitely done go back to soil testing because they can grow year round, not like here, our soil shuts down and in the spring we leach a lot because of the moisture runoff. So we have to keep an eye on that. But yeah, no, like these people get us thinking about, you know, we should do things better or maybe we should look at our soil tests or maybe we should even do a soil test. But it's, it's, um, it's something that we just can't throw out and say, oh, I'm going to do this and we're going to be natural, organic or whatever you want to call it and, and go broke. The, the whole thing with this regenerative agriculture and cover crops is first the fi- financial, if the family can afford to do it first, go baby steps. Then the next thing is, is the cattle. You've got to feed them the best and then soil health after that because nobody is paying us for soil health or carbon sequestration yet. We've got to look after the family first and make sure the mortgages have been paid, the bills are being paid, and the kids can go to basketball, volleyball, whatever. And uh, so walk into it in baby steps and then move on from there. But the cattle come next, and we have to feed them the best feed we possibly can, Um, especially when you're pushing them like our cattle. We've chopped off the bottom end of those cattle like nothing else, and we've got a strong herd now that can handle our year-round grazing operations. So, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's great for these people from other parts of North America or the world coming here and say, yeah, you should do this. You should do that. I've, I've worked in seven countries around the world and I've taken one or two ideas from the UK, Argentina, North America, Aussie, New Zealand. I've taken one little idea and just brought it home. You, you don't have to jump in boots and all. Oh, well said. I like that. Um, I've, I've talked about the schools and all the all the different schools of thought I've I've learned from over the years. Right, you take an idea and you adapt it to your context. Right, build it into your system. It, you know, 
make it work for your farm, not necessarily, you know, what they did is going to work on your farm. So yeah. for sure. Amber, do we got any questions started yet? I haven't been watching chat. We have Steve Johnson. Are you ready to go there? Hi, Amber. Um, hi. Hi. This is uh, from the peace country. We're just running into a bit of problems with our calves and cows. Uh, uh, it has nothing to do with the, uh, I just threw it out there as a question. It's not to do with a, a cover crop. It's just our main feed was, uh, we do a bale grazing thing um, with the cattle and we purchase all our hay. This year in the peace country, we had really wet spring and our pastures were amazing we're finding that the protein of our feet feed it's a wheatgrass aftermath is just uh we we weren't sure what was happening with our cows it seems like we're overfeeding them but it's the same feed that we've had for at least three years and uh, uh but the protein level is almost doubled this year because of our weather i'm not sure um, but uh, it was a really nice uh, summer to put up hay. So I just wondered if anybody had an idea. Uh, the bales, there's uh, 800 of them out there, and we're uh, we're not sure that we're, we they should have access to all of them uh, or as as we go. We're not sure what to do. Tell you the truth. Is this crested wheat, intermediate wheat grass, pubescent? What what is this? Pubescent is what I. Uh, is is a pretty good guess, yeah. Well, in my feed test, four to seven point five is really low. I would low. be supplementing a protein if I had that. Our feed test normally runs fourteen to fifteen. Uh, this year it's eleven point eight, but the carbs got sold off. Um, actually, last load is heading out right now to, as we speak yeah. um, to Smithers. Mm. But, okay. Um, but yeah, that. What's the energy level in it? Just uh, going back to that, um, is this Graham? Yeah. Yeah. Graham, um, is that a combined wheatgrass or are you, is that a? No, that's my cover crops. Oh, okay. My, my okay. winter swath grazing. So uh, we, we have, uh, we grow a lot of grass seed in the peace country. And so this has been combined uh, already. Normally our, uh, like we supplement it with either grain or a, uh, alfalfa to get our protein level up. But uh, this is mainly a filler normally, but it uh, we're up around that 7.8. It's almost doubled from last year. So uh, maybe that isn't the problem, but we're, we don't want a whole lot of prolapses in the spring. So I can add to that, Graham, if you want. Sure, um, there's another guy on here that could really answer it too. Yeah. <laughs> Probably, I mean, from my experience, the season, you know, the the timing of the rainfall, uh, the heat, the everything during the year can really drastically change uh, your feed at the end of the year. I've had bales come in the same field, the same baler, the same crop. You know, one year they're 1,100 pounds, the next year they're 1,700 pounds. Right, they're the same size bale, but the weights are different. I've had you know, some phenomenal crops that look beautiful, uh, you know, five and a half feet tall that are, you know, low in protein because the growth was so fat, you know, so high that, that mm -hmm. it's too much material. Um, so every year it's a good idea to feed test. And I agree with Graham to me for, you know, for, uh, protein is pretty low. 
Um, but if you're having a better year, I mean, I've had straw some years uh, on drought years where you get a bunch of second growth. I took uh, barley straw one year. Basically, it was a 12% protein because of all the second growth in it. So you never know what you're getting. Never. Right. So I, I recommend feed testing every year and getting a, a, a balanced ration. The other issue I've had lots is if I'm trying to feed out on a monoculture. Right. So if you just have one type of wheatgrass in there, there's going to be some imbalances in something. Right. Is it a mineral imbalance of something? Because every plant kind of takes a little something different from the soil. And, and you'll end up having a, an imbalance of something. So I'm always concerned about that. I always feed test and I always kind of try and get that ration balance somehow. If I've got a monoculture, I'll automatically supplement with some mixed uh, hay bales just to get a little bit of something else in there to get a polyculture into their diet. Uh, because I've had some major wrecks when I'm just feeding one type of crop. So I always add something else to it. So, Okay. No, I appreciate that. It's a cow calf operation. So, and we've been, we've been going for quite a few years, but I, I just um, was wondering about that, but mixing feed could help. We just don't want, uh, we had to have had a little bit of both. Uh, diarrhea in them and stuff like that. It could be something else, but um, we were doing well feed. If they're diarrheaing on that, man, I'd be doing a fecal count. We have. Were you thinking uh, coccidiosis or something? Yeah, like worm burden, coxy, whatever. Yeah, yeah we did. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be, because your protein will be down too. Like your protein's probably about 40, 45 to 50, or even less. I should... But it, but there's no way that they should be looking. I wonder if Ken can talk on that. Can are we allowed to bring in other people, Steve? Yeah, Steve. Hey, Ken, do you want to have a chat on that, Ken Van Dries? Yeah, if you can. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure. Ken. For the podcast, could you just give a really quick introduction of yourself? Sure. I work for more than just feed Nutrisource as the forage specialist, and I. We are a dealer for Union Forage, so I get to have the pleasure of working with Graham quite a bit. Um, and I work with Union as their dairy forage specialist. And I've only managed to get on one of these Wednesday night fats so far, but that was a little while ago. Just the timing of it isn't great for me, but yeah, come, came here to learn. And obviously Graham saw my name, so he's putting me on the spot. Yep. This this kid is a freaking genius. He's he's gone overseas to study, but he's he's not giving himself. It didn't it didn't it didn't wreck me, eh? No. <laughs> anyway, no, go I'll, ahead. I'll, yeah, you better stop talking before I uh, get scared. <laughs> so, as I understand, Steve, you're feeding the wheatgrass aftermath straw as a roughage source, and you're supplementing it with alfalfa hay and or grain as in order to bring the quality up. Is that yeah, what I understood? That, yeah, that's what, that, uh, and yes, exactly. Okay. In a TMR then, or is it, are you uh, giving them some bales of each or? Yeah, they have pretty much free access. Uh, we move a, we move a wire. And so they have free access to a series. They work their way through the, the uh, wheatgrass. And then periodically we'll, we'll roll out, uh, alfalfa hay for them so okay because it could be if yeah thin manure that depending on what it looks like of course because there's a lot of variation but it could be just from if you're used if you're 
running the feeding system like you would normally for 4% protein in the wheatgrass straw, and now it's got 8% protein, that protein could be speeding up the passage rate way more than you think. And seven and a half is on its own is actually getting decently close to what those cows need to maintain dry cows on. Mm-hmm. So just supplementing with something that has more energy in it, in this case, would probably get you further than supplementing with a high protein hay. Because the alfalfa is going to speed up the system too. And then if, if you're on a 4% wheatgrass straw, um, that really will slow the system down. Mm-hmm. and slow slow the rumen down but if if you're if you add if you double the protein in the wheatgrass uh, straw that on its own even without the likely higher fiber digestibility that's coming with it even then you're probably going to see higher passage rate the cows are going to eat more in a day because because of that higher passage rate because you're the faster the feed goes through them the more they can eat in a day and the less satisfied they'll be and it doesn't always mean that they're going to be gaining condition on it either. There's a, there's a balance there, but it's hard to say exactly without all the details, of course. And like Graham and Steve both said, the best thing to do is get tests done and, and rebounce, try to try to find a, a bit of a, if yeah, you're not feeding a TMR, but you're, you're supplementing. So you might have to, you might look at putting half as many alfalfa bales as, as you are now, and maybe find some other grass hay to use instead of, the alfalfa and you might see uh, just as good or, or better results in the cows. So could we possibly, would it be okay, Ken, if we put your contact info into the show notes for the podcast? Sure. appreciate that, Ken, actually, because that seems like what's happening. They're just, they're just ballooning out on this uh, wheatgrass and we're actually a little reluctant to put out any alfalfa. They're doing well on the wheatgrass. We need some more cold weather. So. <laughs> yeah, because if the fiber quality is good enough and the passage rate is fast enough, then seven and a half percent protein might be enough because we always think of it in percentages because that's how our brains can handle it the best. But actually, those cows don't have a percentage protein requirement. The rumen kind of does, but those cows have a they need so many grams of protein per day kind of thing. So if they're getting enough grass into them every day that they're meeting that protein requirement then they might be doing just fine without that alfalfa or with a lot less okay, because of that. that extra. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. Awesome. Graham. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Next up, we have Graham Gilchrist. Are you ready to go, Graham Gilchrist? Yeah, I got everything running here. Hi, Graham. You caught, you, you tweaked the question in me when you were doing now your soil samples and and you're trying to monitor your MPK levels. Have you got a handle on the your soil testing, same time, same place, same depth. And are you monitoring and buying the soil organic package in addition to yep. trying to we figure out how to we balance your, your, N, your NPKs? Yep, yep, we do organic. We've gone from 2.8 to 9.2, but it's taken 15 years. And the soil was pretty much, well, like I said, it's been farmed for 50-odd years. They had cattle on before that. Well, actually, they had sheep and cattle, but... Anyway, um, yeah, we've done, we do the NPK. I've stopped. I did a, uh, what's that crowd out of the US, Um, One Earth or whatever it is. Um, I I did that. It's bloody expensive, but I found that was, you know, a lot of information I didn't understand. So I went back to basics. Keep it simple, stupid is my motto. 
Um, and so my NPK is monitored and my organic matter. I don't worry about trace minerals and all that sort of stuff because, mate, you can go down a black hole if you're going to start trace tr uh, tracking uh, micronutrients and minerals and all that. And so if I can get about 170 grazing, grazing days an acre in 90 days of growing, and uh, then I know, you know, and my my energy is around 64 to 68 uh, and then my um, protein is in the low teens then I, I know I'm cool so I can go down this dark hole and spend a shitload of money um, with consultants and everything else but my cattle talk not me so I can see them they they're, they're going into winter in a three plus uh, body score and they're coming out of winter and three plus body score plus they've had calves on until January February. The, it's costing me about a buck six a day with land rent and my labour and all the other things except for the water, uh, electric fence because it's hooked into our house. So on this piece of land, a rented house uh, that we we have that's rented. But um, anyway, uh, so I just uh, you know if I can keep those cattle talking. And, and watching, we've um, we've got a pretty good indication. And those cards are doing about one one point two a day, and it's costing fifty seven cents for that pound a day. So, yep. Curious question: You, you said you were broadcasting versus uh, no, no, narrow no, knife or no. narrow narrow band? No, nope. to put no, the fertilizer. No, I wasn't. No, that was because I wanted to recover that crop, Graham. Oh, okay, okay. Because it was seeded with no fertilizer. And so um, for for 15 all the way to 19, 2019, uh, with no fertilizer, and I broadcasted nitrogen fertilizer on there to recover it. And that's it. But everything else is just down with the seed drill that with I have. Seed. Yep. Cool. Thank you, Graham. No worries. Hey, Graham, I'd just like to add in here if context of what we're talking about. Sometimes it's not clear, are we talking about pasture or is it cropland that is down to grazing or is it cropland that you intermix with grazing? I think that. Yeah. Okay, so we have our summer grazing, which is high, high perennial legumes and grasses. And I uh, see a comment there about uh, breeding. Um, like, shit, I... I, I from when I was a kid, we were told to put the breeding stock on the best pastures we ever had. We could grow on our place um, for conception rates, um, but yeah, no. So it's perennial pastures that don't get broken. They're rotational graze. We're we're all about electric fencing here. We've got shitloads of it, so miles of it. Um, but uh, and then our um, annual grazing is just for winter grazing, and that's it. So we've only got two hundred and 57 acres of winter grazing and the rest is all perennial grazing. So we bring those cattle in in, in early November. Um, depends on the year. We ran out of water on, on the Cochrane place. So so we uh, had to bring them home a little early. That cropland's been under the same regime since we started, Steve. I don't want to break up perennial stands to go and um, – you know, just cover crop for the hell of it. That's it's kind of you're beating a dead horse. So, yeah, I appreciate that comment. I remember years ago, I used to get people that came up when cover crops was just kind of the the new thing. 
I'd have people come up to me and say that the cover crop salesman told me that I need to break up this perennial and reseed it down to cover crops. And sometimes that just made me cringe because, right, you've already got the perennial. Let's just change the management and, and get it, get that perennial kickstarted, right? Maybe we got to add something to it, you know, uh, feed on it or, you know, fertilize it, whatever you need to do. But by ripping that up, it was just always kind of going backwards in my book. So yeah, just, it's a context in everybody's farm, right? In, in my environment, Graham uh, Gilcrest there to kind of answer your question, we've got some pretty low valued land, like you know, it's, it's not cropland, right? It's all bushland. It's gray wooded soil. It's rocky. It's clay. There's not a lot of, um, you know, competition from the, the grain side of it in this land. So to me, the most important uh, thing that I can do is, is the gross margin analysis. Is it working? Am I making a profit on this? You know what, if I was in land that, you know, rented out for $150 an acre, I'd probably have to do something different than what I'm doing. But in the scenario that I'm in, it's a good margin for the for the value that we're we're at here in, in my environment. So it always comes down to economics. And I know Graham Gilchrist always appreciates talks about economics. So well, regardless of what pasture you're on, it's the same question. It's it's always gross margin analysis, partial budgets, all that good stuff. The, yeah, but the we're in agri- pays to do. We're agriculture. We can do all the numbers you want. If we have a shit year, those numbers you can throw out the door. So, yep. yeah, you can do all the numbers you want, Graham, and have this is what I'm going to do, this is my budget this year, and then the rain turns off, then you may as well throw that out two weeks after you wrote it. So you you can have all the numbers you want, but uh, if you don't work with your environment and work with the soil you got and destock, destock livestock when you've got to or, or uh, you know, add fertilizer when you need to to recover something that's drought-stricken, you know, some of these numbers are worth what the paper's written on. Nature bats last. Well, there's a bad joke in there, but you better call out of your paper, Graham. Yeah. <laughs> well, Steve wrote a really good article in March 2018 and um, in the Cattlemen's, but, you know, he said there that you got to look after your perennial pastures first and don't cover crop. And But the only one thing that I did disagree with was cover crops are also thistles and weeds and all that sort of stuff too, but lambs quarters. But we've we got to get high production. We, we can't afford to have weeds taking up space when we can have sandpoint, vetch, alfalfa, brome, orchard, softly fescue, whatever you can grow in your area. You've got to take the competition out with the weeds. Otherwise, that's when... You know, you can let your place get carried away with with lamb's quarters or burdock or or, or net nettle, then you've just shrunk your grazing capacity. So we've got to have a good perennial cover crop stand, if you like. But um, once it's in, it's in, and you've got to manage it right and keep those um, competitors out that aren't productive or aren't uh, palatable to. Yeah, you bet. That's That comes down to the the goal of your cover crop as well. Are you cover cropping to intermixed in your grain operation or are you cover cropping to uh, develop a perennial forage, perennial pasture or a haylander, right? Depends what your target is in the end is how you're going to, you know, plan that and, and manage that as well. I, I think every cropping guy should work with a cattle guy. Like we need to get the no doubt these soils have been mined and 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 vertical tillage is even speeding that up. Um, see so much land 
been blown away if they could work with a cattle guy and put one single hot wire around the place and get guys cattle in there one or two years, don't charge them rent, just get just work together and getting a symbiotic relationship between the cattle guy and the cropping guy to get this soil back into in the par again. No, I agree. Um, the uh, off-calf funding that I talked about, Graham, uh, through the there's the one part of it through CFGA. They're actually approving perimeter fencing. I've never seen that before. Never in all of the funding programs. As long as it's part of a grazing program, you can actually pay for perimeter fencing. So we could now go to those farmers. Now that's only in four of our provinces, I think, uh, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Quebec. But we can go to those grain farmers and we can, you know, most of that fencing and labor is all paid for to put a, a perimeter fence around the grain land. Um, I've been preaching that for 15 years that we need to get perimeter fences back around this grain land and all the grain farmers are taking the fences out. So now we've, you know, maybe this is a turning point. Maybe we'll start getting those relationships built back between the beef guy and the cattle or the grain guy. Yeah, we've awesome. I've done 15, 15 or so and grain's done probably the same. And we've gone through the um, CFGA rather than ADA. So you can, it's better off going through CFGA for that fender funding. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Uh, next up, we have Steve asked, not Steve Kenyon. Um, Steve asked, what percent protein is needed for cows with calves at their side? I always at, uh, aim for the low to mid-teens for protein, but you got to have that energy too, especially in this climate here with the, with the cold weather because a cow can melt. You can have really good proteins. But if you don't have an energy level up there, then she could be putting everything into that calf and she starts melting herself. So you've got to look at 65s um, for TDNs as well uh, in that feed value. Um, but Ken might be able to answer that a bit better too. Ken wants to jump on that, he can. I can. Well, I'm talking from my, from my side in, in the dairy world. Dairy cows that are milking 40 litres a day are balanced for a diet of 16 to 17% protein typically. So a beef cow that's outside grazing in the winter, it needs to keep weight on herself, keep some fat, maintain condition and make milk for a calf and certainly doesn't need to make 40 liters, not even a quarter of that probably enough to keep the calves going too. Just like Graham said, low to mid teens is, is beautiful because you get everybody and wants high protein, but they forget that protein is a percentage of the diet and so is energy. And if you go high in protein, you have to give up on something else. And that means you're giving up on energy when you do that, right? So balancing them both. And, and that's where those some of the swath grazing blends like, like Graham runs and work out so beautifully because they're built to have that low to mid-teens, right? So. Lots of times when I'm uh, swath grazing, I get what I get. Right. It's a wrecked crop. It's a, you know, a grain farmer that had a disaster and he calls me and I move in there and I always end up getting those monocultures in numerous times. I've had issues with that. Uh, one time we had a, a low protein in, in a straight oat crop, beautiful looking crop, but the oats were low and I had cow calf pears out there and, and they were not settled, right. They were on and following me around. And I had to start supplementing with, uh, you know, a mixed hay, hay ration to, uh, bump that up one of the best crops i've ever seen and i had to supplement it 
Another time I had a mineral imbalance and within two weeks of going onto that swath grazing field, it was a, a barley field. Um, I had cows going down because of a, a mineral imbalance. Another time, yeah, another time I had an energy, the, the hay was really low in energy because we had a really bad year and it got rained on over and over. Protein was good, but energy was low and going into calving. And all of a sudden we started having, you know, problems, cattle going down. So you've got to, I, I can't emphasize that enough. You've got to do a feed test and then supplement accordingly. Great. Thanks guys. Uh, next up we have, Oh, we have, we're back to Brian and Alicia. I have been doing a little bit, um, watch, listening to podcasts and different things. C90 is starting to, uh, come up a lot on stuff that I'm looking at. I'm wondering how all that fits in with cover cropping and everything doing like with all the minerals and stuff in the C90, can we get rid of the usage of the minerals when we're doing cover crop? Is it pulling enough out of the ground to uh, get away from all of that stuff? Or do we still have to supplement with things like that? Is C90, is that the seaweed? Yes. Or, yeah, or it's uh, trace minerals from uh, seawater, I think, is actually what it is. How much do you want to spend? Well, that's what I just talked to a guy, and it was 1800 bucks a ton. So I was wondering if that was and, worth and it or was not. He, was he a guy selling it? Yes. Yeah. You've got to get your own independent nutritionist. Like, I've got mm-hmm. a girl who she's she's got a a mineral company, but I trust this girl with, I trust her with my bank account. She doesn't bullshit. She says what you need. I get my feed test done to a couple places, but um, getting a proper mineral for, for what you need that year and what the perennial stand needs or the annual stand is, is cut my mineral costs hugely for the cattle. Uh, and then the soil, the only thing I do, use is is a humate i'll use fish oil and humate in my roundup um but i'll use humate down with my um nitrogen but don't put the humate in the same box as the nitrogen put it down with your with your seed because it gels and then you'll you'll be pushing shit up (laughs) but yeah yeah, no there's so much stuff out there now that's saving the planet and good for the soil and and it unbelievable what's come out in the last five to ten years because like I couldn't talk to anybody about 2007. Nobody knew what I was trying to do, but I wasn't trying to do anything but feed the cattle the best thing I could. And now you go to a trade show, there's at least a dozen bloody miracle companies selling stuff that's going to, you know, make your soil better, cut your fertilizer costs, blah, 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 blah. But, but like, again, keep it simple, stupid, and don't overanalyze stuff. Your seed testing, your soil, feed testing and soil test is going to be where you're going to start. But you want to work with someone, and I just said that isn't selling anything, but but Kristen isn't selling anything. She'll tell me I don't need it, and and she's done that many a time. So my my mineral costs, I use biochar in the mineral too, so we're feeding a condensed form of carbon, which explodes the rumen biology. So it's uh, breaking down a lot more course of feed because the uh, rumen has been um, uh, supercharged um, with with the bacteria, and so you know you gotta you gotta be able to trust the people you're working with, and if they're always selling you up, 
instead of selling you down, you know, you you got to wonder. It's like like me. I tell guys, you know, they want to do a cover crop the first year. They're broken soil. And some uh, some guys will say you need this, this, and this, and this, and I just tell them put sweet clover and winter trip down. There you go. That's all you need because there's so much biology happening in the soil that's eating all the fertility that's breaking down from the, from your root system. There's biology in there eating it at a million miles an hour. You won't be able to keep up to it. So don't go and put a bloody thirty, forty dollar cover crop in. Just do you know simple little things like this or or straight oats. And graze the oats all summer. Don't don't go and fall into this trap where guys are just trying to sell you, especially first year breaking. Just keep keeps it keep it simple, stupid, and that's the way I work with my um, nutritionist girl and Ken, and Ken too. So I get a couple of opinions. I kind of do that with uh, my mechanics, right? I drive an old truck. I don't need all the parts to be replaced brand new every time. I need to find a mechanic that I can trust that gives me good advice, right? If I just go to the salesman all the time, if I just go to the salesman all the time, um, they're going to try and upsell me, you know, every, every time I turn around. So yeah, definitely same as what Graham said, you, you got to find someone that you trust uh, and get some good advice from, you know, someone who's not a salesman. Uh, the, the problem is we have way too many salesmen in our uh, industry right now. <laughs> Awesome. Thanks guys. Uh, next up we have Nathan Daniels. Are you ready to go, Nathan? Yeah, I just just uh, was wondering if maybe Graham could just give us sort of a a season by season breakdown of you know what he does in terms of you know the species of forage, how he establishes, you know when he starts stockpiling, you know when he cuts for swath grazing, and and then you know how he manages grazing through the snow, any issues there. So maybe just like a an overview of the seasons and and what yep. you do. Okay. Yeah, we carve May June. I can't get my head around this January, February, March carving. Um, I'm lazy, I guess, or I hate cold or something. I just, we don't have carving barns. Um, we'll start with carving um, and then come back to the carving. But we have um, grasslands that we've never broke. We've, we've never pasture improved it. It's just pretty much bluegrass fescue. We rent about three quarters of our land base. Um, we're pretty much tenant farmers. Heather and I have only got half section, but, you know, we're renting anywhere. Well, the highest has been when we're big in the yearling business was 2,800, but now we're down to about 1,400, 1,500. But we've got our pasture lands for our carving, and that's all they do for six weeks a year. They don't get touched. They get grazed really heavy. I I don't want my cattle on my best pasture land bogging it up in the spring. I want mellow soil. I want the no crown cracking um, in our highly improved pasture stands. So uh, we, we've got these this carving quarter. It's got minimal fences on it. Uh, actually, it's only got three fences on it. Um, and so I want those cattle to be able to go away, do their own thing, not get crowded. We don't have bedding packs anywhere. If it starts snowing, then we'll go out and assess how bad it is and bring them in behind the wind shelters. We don't use straw in our wind shelters either. That's why we do calf May, but we do we do have storms in May. But uh, so that's our perennial grass stands. But what I have done to try and pass and improve those is I put sandpoint vetch into the mineral. 
and then they just eat that when they're eating their mineral and shit it out in the paddock. And um, that's the only time I introduce something. I don't soil disturb or bog that up. I want it to be able to handle lots of traffic. I, I, I'm not worried about, you know, oh, shit, it's starting to rain. I've got to move them off or move them quicker or yada, 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 and then disturb the cows and the calves. Um, we just, that's what it does. And then once the cattle are off, that's it. That paddock never gets touched until the following year. And then they go um, to Cochrane and um, there we've got an assortment of bush country out there and we've got um, old hay stands that we've got that we go and put them on. So while they've got the calves on young, they're on the best quality they can get. And then um, and then towards the end of the season, they go into the bush. But we, we breed on high legume pastures. I've been taught this since I was a kid, my, like, like our family operation on well, one side had 500,000 acres. The other side was about 20. They were straight sheep. Um, they went up into the clover paddocks, the sheep for, for breeding season. Um, so we wanted super ovulation with those guys. And then the cattle we'd at home, we'd bring them in off the plains grass and bring them in onto the Mitchell grass and the, and the medics and everything like that to get high conception rate. Hey Jack, I just saw you there, mate. Uh, so, but uh, so yeah, horses for courses, and and that's why we do all our own preg checking. We're in the high nineties for conception rate with heifers and cows. We're breeding those females here that can handle the winter. So I'm uh, going into winter with with young heifers. Um, I do not select heifers after their first calf. I select heifers through their first winter off their mother. I'm starting to select them right now. If they can't handle the situation, what we're doing, we've got we've got forage rape, triticale, oats, peas, and I'll chuck in some sunflower. Pretty much sweepings off the floor at Union Forage, but but I, I like we talked about with feed quality here earlier, try to keep it up there. And if those those cattle can't handle the winter, then they go straight into the grass program. We don't even put a bull to them. We've got that herd now where we used to be cutting off about 10% every year off the bottom end of the cows and the heifers. But now, man, I just sent a, a load of cattle to Smithers BC today and um, they were my middle cattle and he paid a really good dollar for them. It's getting that way now where the females are doing doing their work through the winter and then I'm grading them through the winter every day. And then they come back into into uh, the carving paddocks again. So there's three styles we use, I guess. And then um, one thing I, I will say about this is um, you can't forget about the sires as well because um, I used to put my sires here up at the house in a bush paddock, bale graze, bedding, yada, 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 look after them like nothing else. And then here I am a mile down the road jamming it to my females and making them work hard. So now, like they're going out on the weekend, as soon as I preg check, the bulls are going back to swath grazing. And that has really, really narrowed my sire selection down from where I, where I buy sires from now. Because um, why am I jamming it to the females and the bulls have got great gravy trains? So um, I'm selecting those sires now that if they're piss poor when they come in from swath grazing, well, you know, I've got to reevaluate their bloodline or where I get them from. I tend to buy 
bulls that are grazing bulls that I know they haven't had forage, uh, anything but forage through their 18 months, they're kind of long yearlings. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of, you know, if you're going to do that sort of thing, you've got to check the bulls as well. Thank you. That's great. I don't know if that answered you, but that's our style anyway. But my style doesn't suit everybody's style either, you know. I know, like I know in Quebec and Ontario, and Jack will chime in, like they can't do what we do over here. Like the ground just doesn't get to hard enough and they bog it up like nothing else. I've been over in Ontario in the fall and the early winter and it's just a clogmire. So, yeah, what we do here isn't you all need to do. Like, you know, you've got to take little bits and pieces out of this thing and just baby step, like try a little bit and see if it works. If it does, then you can ramp it up. If it doesn't, tweak it. But don't give up on it the first year because the first year, it, it, it's not a fair trial. Awesome. I actually have a question about that, Graham. And that will lead us into Lynn Powell's question, who's up next right away. But with that, can I have your thoughts on the cover crop funding for off-calf because it's only for one year? So how would you recommend what the best way to use that or or how that would work? And then we'll go into Lynn Powell's question. Yeah, no, yeah, one year is the baby step. Like, you're not going to see anything in one year. This is what's wrong with this program is two-year program, hopefully it goes longer, but you can't change. Look, the planet, we can't change anything in one year or two years. Like, it's taken us since 2007 when I, until now to go, up, to go from 2.8 to 9.2 in organic matter, you know, and sequestering carbon. Who knows? It's so young a science. Like I see a lot of this stuff. I, I'm on the board of BCRC, which is the research council here, uh, federal research council. But some of these projects, they want to do a one-year study. We don't even fund it. You can't do anything in one year, right? You, you know, if you're going to go down this track, either perennial, you know, um, or cut, well, we're talking cover crops, but um, don't give up on the first year because you're going to have weed issues. You're going to, you're going to have flea beetles. You're going to have sulfur issues. You're going to have weed invasion, wet soil, you name it. Like the sulfur is a big one people never think about too. Like if you can smell water, uh, sulfur in your water or you've got high sulfur in your soil test, don't use any brassicas in your cover crops because um, you'll kill your cattle in about three days. Nitrate issues. <laughs> Watch if you're a feedlotter and you're putting heavy um, loads of manure out on that on that uh, cover crop before seeding. Then, man, you're going to have an issue in the fall. So all these little things, you, you you figure out what works best for you, and then kind of work up. But one year isn't going to cut it. I tell you, Amber, that's for sure. Yeah, I was just going to say that too, Graham. When you mentioned the cover crop. I had a friend who, you know, with cover crop salesman told him this was the way to go. And he put in this big cover crop and, and all of a sudden he had cows dropping dead and it was the, the, the sulfur, the sulfur jumping in and, and all of a sudden he was killing cows because of it. So yep. um, there, there's all sorts of downsides to that too. I'm, I'm working with a grain farmer. I have been from well, a few different grain farmers over the years, but trying to do intercropping, trying to get, okay, how do we get cattle working on the grain land? So this is kind of a separate sideline to my business, but we've been having some troubles, right? Some years, all of a sudden we, you know, we try an intercropping and we have a drought. Well, there wasn't enough. We, we seeded it late. He seeded his wheat in, he sprayed it out to get control of his weeds. We went, he went in after and interceded in between the wheat. 
put in a, a an annual cover crop mix so that we could graze it after he'd harvest his wheat. And we ended up having a drought and there wasn't enough out there in the fall for me to go out and graze, right? So it, it was a failure. Uh, I've had other years where, this is, you know, there's, there's issues. All of a sudden we're out there trying to graze something in the fall and it got really wet. And now we're, you know, we're punching out a grain field, right? The grain farmer is not going to be very happy if you're punching it out in the fall. Uh, I think, I think he told me here four year, four or five years later, he still sees a yield reduction from his yield monitor in that area where we accidentally punched it out because it was wet. So you've got to have a place to go. If you're going to be out on some grain land and it starts raining and, and getting really wet, you need a place to take it, right? Get them off, have a, a bush area or some, some uh, pasture land close by that maybe in, if it's in the late, late fall or early winter, but you got some bales sitting there already and get them off that cropland. So there's all sorts of things that can go wrong as well. We, it's not awesome. all, what's, what's the, what's the title? It's not all rainbows unicorns and, unicorns. and rainbows. There you go. Yeah. So we have to have a plan B always have a plan B and, and be careful of what you're, you're doing. Cause I think I've said it before, there's 647 things that can go wrong when you're owning livestock every year two go wrong. So you just got to know which two are going to go wrong. So with that, I'd like to get Lynn Powell's question. This is going to be probably more of a question for Steve and I don't know, Sandeep or Jay, if you're around, I know that you guys aren't RDAR, but maybe from coming from Gateway Research Organization, you can answer some of the questions about grow around or about our, uh, off calf around funding through RDAR. So, uh, Lynn, do you want to ask your question? And then, yeah, Sandeep, I see you're ready there. If you, you guys, you and Steve can play off of that one. And then Graham, if you have anything to add, of course, go for it. Yeah. So my question was, what kind of things does OFCAF fund? I do have additional questions after that, but that I just came up with, but that's my question. So I can kind of tackle that first, I guess, depending where you are. Right. Uh, the off-calf funding was it's federal dollars that's put out and then spread across all the different provinces. And it went to multiple organizations. So from kind of being in the background behind it for, for a couple of years now, uh, it's chaos. <laughs> that's all I have to say is it's chaos. Every province has different organizations running it. So all the, all the, the, the structure of it's all different. Some provinces have multiple parts like an example alberta has ardar doing uh, all three streams but cfga is doing the grazing and then the organics are doing the cover crop and then the canola commission's doing another uh, on the on the nitrogen management but ardar does all three so it's it's very chaotic so it depends where you're from uh, you should get in touch with the organization that is is uh, hosting whatever program you want in your province I get mixed up because I'm, I've been doing these sessions in all the provinces. And every time I hear a presentation on off-calf, it's always different. Uh, so I'm not going to give you much advice on it because, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably more confused than anybody because I've been listening to all the provinces. Sandeep, I see you ready. I guess you hit the answer pretty straight. Yeah, it depends upon where you are and then who is providing you that option to apply for. And then... The funny thing is, like, depend upon the organization, they have different rules and qualifications, what qualifies and what not. So it's not a simple program, and it's just two-year, too, so troublesome. But you can start, like, maybe the second part will be, like, where you are, and we can help you out. 
I'll be the optimist in here. There is money available and the application itself is fairly simple depending on where I do see Greg. I see your hand up and by the way, guys, I don't normally let the hands up go thing, but I know Greg is from Gray Wooded Forage Association. And so he's also kind of with the off calf thing. So for that, we're, we're kind of going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I think it's important to kind of reach out on this funding because there is a lot of confusion around it. Go for it, Greg. Yeah, thank you, Amber. Um, yeah, like it was mentioned, it's 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 a lot of moving parts in it, and, and leave it to the government to make something straightforward, a little bit more convoluted. Um, in Alberta, I guess to get things into with the off-calf program, it's a federal program. It's it's dedicated to or, or designed uh, to promote BMPs or beneficial management practices of farmers and ranchers to adopt on their operations. Uh, the intent is to reduce greenhouse gases and improve cell carbon sequestration. <coughs> Given that three streams that they're doing is the nitrogen management, mostly for, for the crop people, uh, adoption of cover crops and, and cover crop utilization of principles. And, and there's a, that that's a, could mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, and then there's the rotational grazing one. Now, the rotational grazing stream uh, is all three of those streams in Alberta are kind of spearheaded by ARDAR as the administrator of the funds. And uh, CFGA is um, Canadian Forage and Grassland Association, also has a role and some funding in Alberta as well, uh, for, but specifically for the rotational grazing. The rotational grazing one, uh, eligibility is stuff like a lot of your materials for, for a power fencing system, uh, materials for and, and, and custom work for, for uh, water water system designs and, and implementations, uh, as well as for funding for, for anybody who's going to hire someone to help them with the grazing plan development and, and cell design. Um, that's kind of as much of in a nutshell. The two organizations have the same type of things that are eligible, more or less, but sometimes the eligibility uh, differs. As, as Steve had mentioned, the perimeter fencing is, is approved from, by CFGA, but not by the RDR group. So I guess the best thing is to keep your, check out the websites, keep your eyes and ears open for some of your local areas of, of having any workshops on the funding programs. I know with Gray Wooded, uh, we're setting up a series of three program workshops for producers with both admit, both both uh, operations in attendance so they can explain that better than, better than I can. But there are some opportunities for funding to get started or expand in those areas. So don't uh, dismiss that. Make sure you, you investigate that because it's a great opportunity to uh, remove some financial barriers in, in going forward on that. So thanks. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks, guys. I think the other big one that's going to be a make a difference to producers on uh, which which program stream you're going to go for is CFGA allows you to write your own grazing plan. However, I would recommend talking to somebody, whether that's one of your research associations or something about that, whereas uh, RDAR is requiring it to go through a PEG. So just just another note there. Lynn, you had another question that was more I, towards. I, the- I just, I just got one thing. Don't rely oh, yeah. on this. Like it's a stepping stone, but if you go, like, don't rely on federal money. It, it could dry up with the next election. It could be all gone. So just pick something that you want to do. Get some money to get it started, but. 
but don't over over um, bank on it because if if one federal government's out, another comes in, then it could be all done in a heartbeat. So um, do this for your own benefit and your own bottom line. Uh, if there's money out there right now to get it, then great. But um, do this because you want to do it, not because the money's out there. That's a really good point. For sure. Uh, Lynn, you had another question that was more relevant. Sorry, we kind of went off on a tangent there, but there has been a lot of confusion surrounding off-calf. So kind of wanted to clear a bit of that up. So go for it, Lynn. Okay, so I was saying, um, I was wondering what the average weight or target weight of your adult cows are. If you find like getting too big or too low has a negative effect. And then also, did I hear you correctly? I check the cows you put your bulls back out with them yeah okay I'll, I'll i'll answer one of those at a time um and you've got another question here about barbed wire fencing and perimeter and single hot wire um yeah so, so yeah after preg checking um the 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 culls go the uh, empties and uh and then my once the heifers are shifted because um we have two areas of swath grazing so one the one close to home here, um, the heifer replacement heifers, they all head over to Airdrie and that's where they spend the winter and the bulls go to the swath grazing with the pregnant cattle in the, just a mile down the road here. Okay. So, yes, that is correct. I can ask, uh, you're breaking up, Lynn, but I can ask that like the four-wire four barb um, and you want to put a hot wire on the top, I definitely wouldn't put it on the top. I'd pull one of your barbs out, probably the second um, highest, uh, the second from the top, and stick it in there um, because uh, you're not okay. going to, if, if a calf wants to walk a fence, they're not going to jump it, they're going to crawl it. So either your second or your third wire. And if you've already got a barbed wire fence, you're better off having off riggers um, because um, you'll have a lot of shorting out um, with wildlife jumping over it and stuff. If you're starting from scratch, our boundary fences are hot, cold, hot, and our all our internal fences are single wire. We we yeah, it costs what did it cost? There's a it was a buck twenty a foot for a single hot wire. Um, a barbed wire is anywhere between eleven and fourteen dollars a foot for four barbs. So um, and I think yeah. Mm -hmm. I think our other fences were three dollars. I can't remember now. It's been a while since I've pencil shit out like that so yeah um but i didn't get your yeah. third question lynn it's, kind of broke up. oh sorry i had asked what your average weight for your cows oh, are cows. your adult cows if you don't mind me asking yeah no no they will mind you there we we run a black baldy herd hereford angus crosses back to hereford angus bulls I do have Brahmin influence mm -hmm. in my cattle because I, 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 I used to be a Brahmin breeder. And, and um, so our older cows are huge. They're anywhere 1,600 pounds plus, but they're now 17, 18 years old. Uh, no, no, actually 17, 16, 17 years old. So that's the last of them. But my average, the newer cattle would be running around 13 to 14. They're, they're not mm -hmm. overly small. They're not overly big. Um, but even if they're big, if they can't keep condition on being a big 15, 1600 pound animal, well, they're, they're not here. Right. So, yeah, but yeah, they're not, they're not your 1100 pound cows. Um, yeah. By any means. So, yeah. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering. I'm probably going to be going with a smaller cow. I only have 22 acres, which isn't a huge amount, but it's not like teeny tiny. Well, my daughters have highlands, and they're the most efficient cattle we have, actually. Yeah. I was thinking of either getting highlands or low lines. I wouldn't get low lines. I was involved with, uh, yeah. Like the college I went to in Australia was right next to Trangin Research Station. And um, that line was bred by shutting the gate on the whole herd and just line breeding. And the experiment mm-hmm. was by the Australian government to see which which way cattle would go if they were locked uh, into breeding. Mm-hmm. And low, low lines, what that's what happened. Um, sure, they're a little efficient, but they've they're got so many breeding problems. Um, I, I would go with a you know, Highland Angus Cross or something like that. Um, but low lines, they opened up the herd and they were a big trendy with acreage people here because they were small and cute and cuddly. And, um, man, they they just did not perform out in the real world. Oh, so really? I've seen, them, I've seen them since the 70s. I, I went to college in the 80s, early 80s. They were only about two hours away from our college and we, we got to study them and stuff and what happened. And, um, man, it was pretty neat. But it really, they've got their issues. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, like the reputation from breeding online is that they're a nice small cow, but they're like still pretty efficient and meaty and fine boned and stuff. And they don't have the the dwarfing issue that Dexter's do. But I mean, hearing from someone who's got like a lot of experience with it is different than like hearing the, People praising them, seeing their praises online. Well, so. you know, people online. You read stuff about Stephen on Stephen I online. You were rocket scientists, yeah. so I wouldn't read read everything. But Galloway's <laughs> were bred for a completely different um, uh, system. Galloway's and belted Galloway's they were bred for sailing ships back in the day, so they were bred um, to a minimum space. And then the, the ship crew could have milk, um, meat for their, you know, two-year voyages around the world. So mm-hmm. Galloway's bred for a completely different reason back in the 1700s 1800s. For, well, the British started them um, and got them even smaller, but they were trying to get an efficient animal. So the, the cow would go on board with a calf at foot, calf in utero, and she was milking, so she had three purposes, and then by the end of the voyage, she was mm-hmm. chopped chop liver too. Yeah. I've heard good things about Galloway's. Um, there's some, I guess, depending on the line, they've gotten fairly big. Like, you go on, like, what they're supposed to be, they're like, supposed to be, like, 11, 1,200 cow, and bulls are, like, I don't know, 15, 16, 17. And if you go with the, oh, who is it? Um, The guy that's big in alberta yeah no you're right um the first guy to bring him in alberta was ted uh he since died he had a helicopter company um can't remember his last name he made a killing out of um out of the low lines but uh but Mm. are you selling cattle by the pound are you just selling them just because they're um i'm i'm just getting into it like (laughs) <laughs> so i mean i've read a ton but i don't have the experience so i'm just getting into it i'm just going to get like a couple hmm. and then see how i do you know so, you so I'm private, just trying to... privately are you going to sell the meat privately uh yeah i'd be looking for 
privately direct sales probably. Okay. I mean, so, I'm probably not going to have. So you're being paid by the pound. Yeah. So why are you going small pounds? I guess so. I mean, I was thinking more about like ease of management of the cattle. I mean, can, I don't want a, a huge cow, cow, but I mean, I'll. You know, you can have a really good Hereford Angus cross cow that'll do just as good a job and put pounds on. I, I don't yeah. see the purpose of just having a cow because she's small and you're being paid by the pound. There's a balance. Sorry, uh -huh. there's a balance to environment too, right, Graham? Uh, the farther south you are, mm -hmm. you can have smaller smaller cows. The farther north you go, it's just like nature, right? Our white-tailed deer are bigger up here compared to down in the States. So the farther north you go, the bigger body frame you need on an animal to put on more, more fat for a, a longer winter. So a, a tiny cow in, you know, Northern Canada is probably not your best way to go. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a good point. You need a vat, right? The stomach, the cow is just a vat. Yeah. Right? So you need to have a yeah. big vat to keep the body condition on the cattle warm and all this good stuff too, like Steve said. But Thank you very I'm much. I'm going to touch on your first question a little bit. Um, you were talking about yeah. uh, electric fence on your barbed wire. So I've, I've had that yeah. question quite a few times before. It depends what you have for livestock and it depends what your neighbor has for livestock. Okay. So if I'm going to build a fence for my livestock, I would like to, if I'm going to put hot wire on it, I'd like to have a hot wire for every nose, right? If I've got calves out there, you know, maybe I'm going to build a, you know, put one wire up there for the, for the calf nose, right? At that height. And then I've got another wire for maybe the, the cow nose. And then if I've got really bad neighbors, then I might have a third wire for the nosy neighbor, a little taller, but, uh, um, <laughs> but the other side of it, okay, what else? You, what if you've got horses, right? Horses like to reach over the top. So in that case, I definitely want to have that hot wire on the top and then all the rest of the barbed wires wouldn't even matter, right? Because they're always reaching over and they're going to be pushing on your fence or say my neighbor has bulls. Well, bulls like to sniff and they put their noses up. So that hot wire right on the top is a good thing. But if I'm just dealing with, with uh, my animals, well, that second bottom wire, right? I don't want the very bottom one because it's going to have too much forage grown over it. But that second one up, because they'll either reach in between one and two or in between two and three, if they're going to push through a barbed wire fence. So I want that second bottom one hot. Uh, to keep my animals back. So it, it kind of depends on the livestock that you're dealing with, right? Neighbors or yours. So uh, just my two cents on it. Awesome. As far as I can tell, my, yeah, as far as I can tell, my neighbor doesn't look like cropland, but it looks like hayland, but I could be wrong. It doesn't look like they've got livestock there. It's not fenced. Yeah, it's not fenced. Uh, no, they do have fencing on the one side, actually. So they might have animals in there, but I mean, I've only been here for like three, three weeks. So, and I three. saw the property first, like uh, a month before that. So it's exciting. Um, to oh, I was moving... going to say, uh, would you offset? Yep. Depends. Yeah, it is. It depends. Would you put that doing. second to bottom? Would you offset it or replace that wire? I'd replace the barb completely, take it right out and use insulators. Don't go straight onto wood, especially with the new fence posts now because they're more copper in them than they used to be. So you want an effective fence. If you're going to spend money on a good energizer, insulate the thing from one end to the other because it's always yeah. a, a poor built fence that lets you down. So spend the money. Yeah. 
I'm going to add a link in the, the chat for my hose offset insulator. I'll show you. It's a picture of it. It's a very cheap way of doing it, but it, it's an insulator that keeps your uh, wire offset about uh, six to eight inches. So I'll add a link. Yeah, but PVC pipes going up right now. Um, yeah, uh, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we could rant for a while, I'm sure, Graham. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Graham. We'll move on to the next question though, because we are okay. running out of time here. So uh, thanks, Lynn. Next, we have Brian and Alicia. You guys have another question, and this will be the last one before we wrap up. I'm working on this computer, this phone thing. It's I'll get it eventually. I work for a company called Covers and Co out of Manitoba. So we do a cover crop, a 15 species blend. And I'm wondering how a person would be able to go about um, renting land from a grain farmer and saying like, this is going to improve your soil and you're going to see a benefit over the next few years because I put this cover crop in to get like um, water retention into the soil and things like that. Um, the reason I'm asking is one, cause uh, being able to sell the cover crop and two, we have a limited land base, which to work with. So we're trying to find creative ways where we can kind of convince grain farmers to let us use their land to put the cover crop on and take the, take the bales off. At this point in time, I'm not wanting to graze. It's just I've got too many irons in the fire that I don't want to have animals all over the place grazing. Um, what do you? What are some of your opinions on this idea, mate? I got a lot of opinions, but I don't have some. <laughs> we like that. Like, That's good. Yeah, like I, I, you're promising something you can't deliver at all, and that's yeah. what I want to know. I don't want to do yeah. that. Yep. You, you're rape and pillaging the land. So you're, you're growing a crop and taking it off. What benefits are you doing? You're not mulching anything in. I, I cannot afford, uh, uh, if I was a grain guy, to grow a cover crop for one year just to mulch it back into the soil and think that's going to save, save the planet, save my farm. You guys who go out there, and this is one of my biggest challenges, is convincing guys that it's all half of this is bullshit because you can have his land just say you take all the organic matter off in forage and then you're taking it back to your yard. Well, all you're doing is exporting his nutrients onto your place. He's getting very limited uh, nutrients on his soil because you're, you're mining it. You're, you're not putting livestock back on. You need livestock back in the soil. You need that shit and piss. You need the biology of the rumen in the soil. You need that. The, the cover crops is just a medium. The livestock is doing right. everything. The cover crop is the medium in order to get the livestock on there. Yep. Yep. Right. Like you grow it so that you have something to feed the livestock and that the livestock is actually what's putting it back in. Yeah. So unless yeah. you're going to do the fencing and the, and bring the cattle in. Yeah. Okay. No. Does that make sense, Brian? Yeah. yeah. No, it does. And that, that's what, I, that's what I was wondering whether this idea was worthwhile um, pres presenting to grain farmers or not avoid that question i change that question around and completely i get grain guys saying oh you know you're in calvary co they say they don't need fertilizer after one year well i've just explained that that's all bs because uh you you, you can't do it it's impossible because all you're doing is is growing something in there especially the legumes you're not 
You got if you want nitrogen fixing, don't use anything but peas. That's it, done deal. And then have another crop to go in there with them because you've got these high performance crops, the the brassicas and the turnips, they're mining quick as you're producing. So and then you're going to take that off, like the forage rates and stuff like this. You're going to take that off, and then you're going to say, "Oh, I'm improving your soil." You're not. You're mining the soil even more. So you may as well let that cropping guy just keep on going, unless you're going to put livestock back on his soil. Okay, and that um, goes for all conditions of their soil. Like if I went into um, more of a swampy area, a saline area, or even we could even go into a kosher area. We have we're starting to get a bit of kosher down in our country here, and I'm just wondering if. Like if we could improve the like the water retention and maybe get it so that their their crops would be able to grow better, or even make them a productive area, right? right. Is, I, if, if they're trying to take something off those acres that aren't doing anything anyway, if we can take crop take a, a forage blend off those for a couple of years and then put cattle on them. So at least in the farmer's mind, would they still be producing something? Yeah, saline conditions is a big picture. It's probably the most saline that I deal with is in a low area. So you've got a whole, you're in a, you're in a pan and you've got hard pan conditions up high. The soil, I did, I did this when I was at college. Um, like you've got to treat the soil higher up. You just can't say I'm going to plant cover crops in this saline area and then it's going to get rid of it. Um, you've got to go contour farming, um, key line farming, contour farming. It's it's getting rid of that pan in the soil and uh, opening that and get an aerobic activity going, which explodes biology as well. And then you're going to have to uh, grow something in there like an alfalfa. I wouldn't do an do, ever do an annual in saline conditions. We, we've done a lot of work with this with BCRC. And um, there's nothing out there that can really uh, prove the point yet. Kosher is the best thing. So you're better off putting electric fencing around there and graze the kosher. This is a whole, whole big topic by itself. And um, it's, there's no silver bullet to it. And if it's, if it's low area and it's saline, then you're going to have issues with um, uh, halo alfalfa. And then if you're going to put... Um, uh, halo, halo alfalfa. It'd be salt lander. You're, you're salt, thinking, yeah, salt lander. Yeah, exactly. Salt lander. We've got big issues with it here in uh, AC salt lander. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Um, that's uh, big issues with downy brome. We can't clean it out. It's it's one of those things now. The Department of Agriculture did a really good job, but um, the areas that's been grown for harvest is um, we've we've had some downy brome issues, and I and I know the guys who have bred it in Swift Current and. Uh, Really, really good scientists, and they're kind of disappointed with it right now. But saline is is one big topic. It's not tiny little fix at all. That's for sure. You can we can chat for a long time on this, but um, cover crops. Isn't <laughs> I'm sure we can. Yet. Yeah, and it's not going to happen okay. one year too. Like you, like I said, it's taken you know 15 years to get my organic matter up. So if you go to a cropping guy and say, "Hey, I'm going to fix this and give me two years of your crop," you, you're really barking up he's barking up the wrong tree so i'm actually i'm actually in the middle of exactly what you guys are talking about right now we've been working with a grain uh, grain farmer for quite a few years and uh, two years ago he came to me or actually three three years ago he came to me he had some low land that they 
half the time they can't seed it because it's too wet and half the time they can't harvest it because it's too wet. So they just have been having trouble with that land for years. So they wanted to get cattle on their land and said, okay, you can rent that little piece. And then we have cattle over there that we could add to the grain land, you know, for cover crop or fall grazing or whatever. So that's been going on for a while. Yeah, it's been pretty wet. 2019, 2020, it was pretty wet over there. We were grazing through 11 inches of water in time. So it's not good grain land. Now, we we took over another couple of pieces from them. And the idea was to put in some cover crops slash perennials, however we do it, uh, for four years. And to see if we can improve it. Because he actually designed the shape of his field according to his yield monitor. So my fences were really weird shaped because we're trying to take all his bad land and put cattle on it. And the, the idea was for four years. So we are two years into it. And guess what the price of grains do? It's through the roof. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. So guess uh, what happened to our experiment right in the middle. They're taking the land back because even the marginal land, mm-hmm. they think that they can make money on the high grain prices right now. So it's not a magic fix. It's not going to fix it overnight. Like I was, you know, even after four years of doing that, I'm thinking, you know, I don't, I don't know if they're going to see a huge difference. They're not making a, you know, big profit off my cattle right now because I got to take enough for my labor. They got to, you know, hopefully get a little bit of it to cover land rent is about all they can make on it. And it's not worth it to them right now. So uh, it's a, it's an economic thing again, you know, how much money do you put into it after four years? Yeah. We took soil samples at the beginning of it and I was hoping to be able to take soil samples at the end of it and see what the difference was. And then the, the real measurement would be uh, his yield monitor you know, on year five, did that yield monitor really even out with the, with the part of his grain field that he kept in grain four years of having cattle, the manure, the urine, the the inputs in there from the animals did, was that enough to heal that poor or doing land? And I might not see that answer now because they're, they, they told me like a week, uh, two weeks ago that they're going to take that land back and put it back into canola. So, so much for the experiment. $20 canola is a pretty tempting carrot, isn't it? Yeah, I can't argue with him, right? I mean, it's it's his land, it's his no. dollar, so. Yeah, I guess my other kind of thought behind it was everybody that I've talked to about bale grazing, or a lot of people anyways that I've talked to about bale grazing, they say they see the rings of where the cattle were afterwards. And I didn't know, like, where the bale was. You'd always see a ring for years after. And I didn't know if that was just the manure or if it was actually the, the plant matter um, going back into the ground, causing those rings. I was hoping that it was the plant matter going back into the ground and I could use the cover crop to improve the soil as a bit of a green manure after I took it off in the regrowth stage. You'll see that ring for the first year and second year, but that is shielding the soil. So the moisture staying in there longer eventually rots down. Victoria. We'll see it rotten down over here where the bulls used to feed. and But the next year when they go to graze it, they won't graze it because it's high in potassium, which is bitter, and so the, and so um, which encourages growth. But you'll see it growing more than the grass around it because the cattle aren't touching it. Then you say, oh, look at that growth and look how much it's growing. But look right, you know, two feet away and the cattle have got it hammered. Right, so that's potassium in the in the leaf cell, so the, it's better. So the cattle won't touch it the first, maybe second year. Depends how hungry they are. But 
I, I strongly believe in bale grazing. I, I think it's a good tool. I know a lot of our guys do it and it and it's just a cheaper way. They they're exporting, like you were saying before, exporting nutrients from one paddock to another paddock. So your grainland guy to your place. And so you've got that rotting down material, you've got the shit and piss of the bull, and um, and then you're off to the races building a soil. But um, it's a lot of thatch on there, which is keeping the soil cooler, which all pretty much everything in a perennial stand here in Canada is a, is a cool season grass. It's going to grow under those conditions. And as soon as it gets hot, the grasses slow down, but you see the rings growing. Um, that's because it's got that shade cloth uh, and organic matter building up in the soil, holding moisture and fertility as well. So there's a number of combinations going going through this um, system, what you're doing. But I, I strongly believe in bale grazing. But um, for the next year or two after it, don't don't say, oh, look how much it's growing there. You'll notice it's growing because the cattle aren't eating it. Oh, okay. Uh, that's that's interesting. Never would never uh, that never occurred. I never thought of that. So um, hmm. I do thank you for your time. I don't want to hog yeah. the whole night. So um, I appreciate it. Thank you guys. You bet. Yeah, definitely. My first in uh, thought on that is water holding capacity big time. That's what the bale grazing does. There's all sorts of other things, but that's the big one, but we are out of time. Amber, you want to yeah. shut so, us down? Yep. Well, I'm not going to shut you down. I mean, that just sounds mean there. Yes, we are out of time. However, I would like to just take a moment to thank Gateway Research Organization uh, for for putting on these nights as well as Greener Pastures Ranching. And thank you, Graham, for, for being here with us tonight. I would really like to just get some closing thoughts from you guys after hearing these questions. So we'll start with you, Graham. If you want to just talk about maybe some encouragement for producers or, you know, just, just some closing thoughts on, on the evening. Yeah. A couple of things, I guess, is use baby steps. You don't need, you don't need 15 things in a blend. Um, keep it cost effective, keep, you know, four or five uh, or one or two. Uh, even it's a, it's a leg, a perennial, an annual legume and a, and a uh, annual grass don't use cover crops that have got perennial grasses in them or legumes because you're just pissing that money up against the wall and keep it simple stupid baby steps and this isn't going to happen overnight either like it's it's a long-term process and and don't believe the guys that say it's a miracle because you, you can't believe that stuff it's not a miracle it takes time it takes management it doesn't take it's not a one trick pony that you stick it in there next year. Oh my God, look how things are going. It, it takes time to do what you're doing. And, and, and I, 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 we've proven that here on our place, but um, start off with baby steps, I guess. And if the guy's selling you a miracle, walk away. Um, if he's saying it's a miracle next year, you'll not need this. You won't need fertilizer and then make it cost effective too. If you guys, you know, uh, 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 looking for that miracle bullet and you think I'm going to go cover crops. I'm going to spend you know $70 on seed. And I won't use any fertilizer again, walk away from that theory too. Like um, you've got to keep these fertilizers and these fertilizers in your system. You've got to keep weed control. Um, we don't want weeds growing in our uh, cover crops or our perennial stands. Really. We want a, th a thick, th thatch of 
beneficial plants that are going to that are going to achieve what you want to achieve. But don't put don't put this up that it's going to be you know I'm going to do this year this this year and then next year I'm going to be just perfect. It, it'll never happen. Never happen. You've got to take time at this and build it slowly. Awesome. Thanks, Graham. Uh, my final closing thought would be. Uh, I think it's a, a Gabe, or I'm pretty sure it's a Gabe Brown quote originally. Uh, nothing grows soil faster than a well-managed perennial polyculture, right? I mean, I'll use a cover crop, but it's to, it's when I take over some grain land and I'm trying to establish a perennial polyculture. And that's my goal in, in my operation. So, yeah, uh, thank you very much, Graham. Appreciate your uh, wisdom and knowledge and all those other good things that make you sound like, what was it, a rocket scientist you said? Yeah. <laughs> both of I said both of us sound like rocket not me. Uh, awesome. Thank you very much, Graham. Really appreciate you being here. Wonderful. Thank you guys. And with that, we are going to kick off after networking, networking. So stick around, have a chat. We'll be throwing some links into the chat channel. Um, some of those are the Gateway Research Organization YouTube channel, as well as the podcast for this um, and our social media. And Graham and Steve, if you guys want to throw some links in there too, feel free to. And yeah, 